Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. If you want to find out more about us or our amazing range of short courses or degrees, go to crawford.anu.edu.au. I'm sure there'll be something there that takes your fancy, perhaps even the short course offered by myself and my co-host for today, Sarah Bice. Hello, Sarah. How are hey, you? Hey, Martin. How are you going? I am really well. Sarah, of course, is an associate professor here at Crawford School. She's also the Vice-Chancellor's Future Scheme Senior Fellow for her work on the Next Generation Engagement Programme. That's Australia's largest study into community engagement in infrastructure. So, Sarah, how's your week been? It has been busy, Martin. We've actually been running around the East Coast with the Next Generation Engagement Program, holding workshops with industry representatives to develop a framework for best practice characteristics around community engagement for major infrastructure projects. And this week alone, we have involved more than 100 industry professionals in our research. Wow, that sounds fantastic. And has anything interesting come out of that research this week? Some of the interesting things that are coming out are thinking about how we can deal with a very intensive period of infrastructure delivery within Australia. So historically, we do community engagement on a project-by-project basis. And we're starting now to think about how can we have a more community-focused approach to dealing with intensive project delivery so that we can reduce what we call the cumulative impacts on communities. Now, it's interesting you touched on community engagement because we're going to be talking about that a little bit later. But first, what's caught your eye in the wide world of public policy over the last week? Well, Martin, there is so much out there, but I think it would be remiss if we went past the recent Four Corners episode and Cash Splash that I'm sure many of our listeners have watched. Now, this Um, is the one which had uh, Professor Quentin Grafton, who has presented this podcast on a few occasions. Yeah, that's right. And he's a good Crawford, good colleague from the Crawford School of Public Policy here. That program was about irrigation efficiency programs, particularly in Queensland. There are some fraud charges being laid, but there's also a big debate now around whether or not these programs are fulfilling their remit. And the idea was that through irrigation programs, we would achieve greater water efficiency, which would flow through to environmental water, uh, and that this would be a win-win for everyone. These are programs that are funded by the Commonwealth government, but they are administered by the basin states, and there are now some major questions being thrown up around those. There's been a lot of talk for, uh, for, for the last year or two about the challenges of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Do you think this might be the impetus for change? You would hope it would be an impetus for change. Certainly, this is starting to appear as a major failure because the spend on irrigation efficiency to restore water to an ailing Murray-Darling Basin certainly has failed. The problem is, though, that we have historically failed to come together across the states and territories and to agree on a harmonized regulatory framework for the Murray-Darley Basin. And I'm not convinced that this will necessarily be the lever because it seems to me that so many of the instances in the past, a sensible person would also have thought this is the time when these governments will put aside their local quibbles and come to an agreement about a shared national resource. So there you go, listeners. You've heard what uh, has caught 
Sarah's eye over the last week. We're keen to get your thoughts. Did you watch that Four Corners show? What did you make of it? The best way to let us know is to reach out on our Facebook group. We're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook, but you can also hit us up on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum, or you can just go old school and email podcast at policyforum.net. Coming up later on the pod, we're going to take a look at an innovative plan to turn unused and unloved waste ground in urban areas into shared community spaces. But first up today is a special panel we recorded during the ANU Australian Crawford Leadership Forum. This year's forum, held on 24 and 25 June, was built around the theme of rebuilding trust in our public institutions and policymaking. One area of policy that may need to rebuild some trust is the National Disability Insurance Scheme, better known as the NDIS. Launched in July 2016, the NDIS provides support to people with disability, their families, and carers. It's funded by the Australian and states and territory governments, and it's a huge and significant public policy, but one that's had a really challenging start. A large part of the previous government's savings in the recent budget – approximately $1.6 billion. look for that under your couch cushions, Martin, this came from underspending on the NDIS. It was also a cause of controversy in the recent election campaign when the coalition announced a $5 billion drought future fund with money earmarked for the NDIS. It's a sensitive issue with transition rates lagging behind. Bill Shorten, after taking on the shadow NDIS portfolio, recently commented that People with disability and their families, carers, and service providers know that empty promises won't fix the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So we want to ask, can the new government fix the NDIS? It's a great question to ask, and we've got a fantastic lineup of experts to unpick this topic. Uh, You're going to hear from Dr. Gemma Carey, who has been on the pod before. She's terrific. She is an associate professor and research director of the Centre for Social Impact at the University of New South Wales, and she's also a fellow at the National Health and Medical Research Council. Then you're going to hear from Jenny Macklin. Now, Jenny Macklin was a former MP for the Australian Labor Party. She was the minister in the Rudd and Gillard governments as Minister for Families, Housing and Community Services, and in 2011 was given additional responsibility as Minister for Disability Reform. So she was pivotal in the rollout of the NDIS. And last but certainly not least, you're going to hear from Claire Moore. Claire is the CEO of Women with Disabilities ACT, and she's a member of the Disability League. Leadership Institute. Now, Women with Disabilities ACT are one of Crawford School's nominated charities that we're working with this year to raise funds for them and awareness of their activities. So it's fantastic we can get Claire involved in this discussion. And I think you're really going to get a lot out of it. It's a really good discussion. Uh, and leading the discussion is Tess McGurr. Tess is a PhD candidate here at Crawford School, and she's got experience overseeing delivery of various social services and infrastructure initiatives in communities and towns camps in the Northern Territory. Now, Sarah and I will be back after this discussion, but for now, let's hear from our panel. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome, Gemma. Hi, Tess. <laughs> welcome, Jenny. Good to be here. Hi, Claire. Hi, Tess. So there are some concerns about the National Disability Insurance Scheme that we'll cover shortly. But Jenny, I might pass this over to you because NDIS is one of your babies. Um, when functioning 
in its full form, fully operational, what should it mean for the lives of people who access the scheme? The dream that uh, people with disability and their families, me, uh, had when we were introducing the National Disability Insurance Scheme was that we would create uh, literally what its name says, an insurance scheme that would be there for people's lifetimes because any one of us can uh, acquire a disability, be born with a disability, have a disability as a result of illness at any time. And so we wanted to create uh, this national uh, insurance approach that would mean each and every Australian contributed a small amount to ensure all of us uh, to make sure that if a disability should uh, happen to any of us at any time, that we would be able to get the care and support that we need to live strong and independent lives. And the emphasis really on the second part of what I just said is also very important, that people with disability themselves wanted to make sure that they got to share some of the risk. Um, I think anybody who knows anything about insurance understands that uh, it is about sharing the risk. Uh, and people with disability want to be able to live their own lives and share the risk of uh, making decisions about what sort of support they would have and through that actually see uh, the long-term costs of the scheme being uh, more sustainable. So um, I, of course, understand the issues that confront the scheme right now, but I think it is very, very important to um, have in the front of our minds just what a huge reform this is, uh, what its um, aspiration is for people with disability and for their families. I mean, the reason we created it was because the old system was completely and totally broken. Um, thousands upon thousands of people did not get, or some people got no no support whatsoever. Uh, parents, uh, particularly older parents, were um, struggling to um, just provide the most basic levels of support for their adult uh, sons or daughters with a disability. And uh, we could just see that the whole thing was... Uh, going to collapse. Um, so there was an urgent um, imperative, uh, but the idea of creating this new system of social insurance was really about saying we should all be in this together and people with disability should be able to live strong and independent lives as a result of the support that they can now be provided with for their lifetime. Prime Minister Scott Morrison um, just described the delivery of the NDIS as, I quote, one of the most important social reforms that our country has seen in a generation. Mm. Gemma, large part, about $1.6 of the government's surplus comes from an underspend on the NDIS. And I was just wondering your views, why wasn't this money spent and what are the consequences of this underspend um, for people using NDIS services? First, I'll say that like, it was problematic that that was framed as a budget surplus because that underspend uh, shouldn't be an underspend. That's a sign of implementation not having been kept on track versus some kind of genuine saving of efficiency that's going on within government. Uh, 
what that underspend represents is um, some of the most vulnerable Australians not getting the services that they need through the NDIS. Mm, And in some places, then this money is used for other things. So, for example, um, drought relief, which is also obviously of high need, but do you have any views on how we make this balance or is it reasonable to use this NDIS funding for other purposes? Personally, I don't think it is. It is should be being repurposed uh, over into solve other policy areas because we know that, um, you know, the NDIS was costed out. It's, um, you know, it's been modelled to particular costs and we don't want to see that money disappear somewhere else and then it's got to be found again. Uh, Sorry, I mean, Labor had a platform of creating a separate fund where the money would sit there protected. Uh, I think that was a good platform to have. Um, So it's unfortunate. The other place that um, saving is happening is actually within the kind of the bureaucracy, the administration of the scheme. So there's been a staff cap in place that's affecting the National Disability Insurance Agency and its ability to uh, effectively implement the scheme and also be an easy agency for families and providers to engage with. Uh, So... They're kind of false savings in a way. They're savings on the on the backs of vulnerable Australians, I would say. And Claire, you've got um, a lot of experience with what's happening at the coalface of this policy implementation. I was just wondering um, if you can share a bit around uh, what it looks like and how the politics is interfering with people on the ground. So what we're seeing at the coalface is that a lot of people just aren't getting uh, – within a reasonable time frame, access to the scheme. They're not getting their their plans um, done in a timely manner, which means it's just taking them too long to get the supports they need. As uh, it's said within the scheme itself, these supports are reasonable and they're necessary. And so the longer it takes for people to get them, the more it's driving vulnerable people into difficult places. Um, I work with women with disability and women with disability are even more marginalised than um, most uh, populations because of that that dual marginalisation and we're hearing about um, women who are caring for, for kids that are struggling to meet those care requirements because they're not getting the support they need to live and then not being able to care for their kids. Um, there's also issues around bottlenecks with plan reviews when the plans come back and they're incorrect because of issues built into the planning process. So there's multiple issues built into the system resulting in these bottlenecks that could be solved by spending that money to lift that that staffing cap. So already we're starting to talk about a lot of the challenges that are being seen in the implementation of the NDIS. But they're um, not that complicated. Listen mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm. two things that have been said just now. Lifting the staffing cap is not a complicated change mm-hmm. to make. Um, that change could be made immediately. Uh, it might take a little bit of time to get the extra staff and to make sure that they're trained. That's certainly true. It it would take more time to make sure there are enough staff, tra- enough people trained to, to do the jobs that are needed that people with disability uh, want to employ. Um, all that's true, but uh, if you don't make a start and uh, lift the staff cap and employ the people that are needed to make the decisions that you rightly say people are relying on, uh, then you can't fix these problems. But the, the thing that's frustrating, I think, for especially for people with disability, but also for those of us who care so much about it uh, from the uh, beginning, um, 
just get on and fix them. They're not that hard. Another another one of the challenges um, that some people have identified is around um, ambiguous eligibility criteria. Um, and, and to be eligible, people must have a permanent disability. Um, Gemma, you've written a piece recently for Policy Forum um, uh, talking about the line between health conditions and um, disabilities and mentioning that it's a naturally blurry line. I was just wondering what the consequences of that blurred line is and what we can do about it. Sorry, permanent, like the eligibility criteria are permanent and um, like lifelong and severe, but that's there's room for interpretation in how you how you usually like operationalize that and it's being operationalized by thousands of street level bureaucrats like sitting in different parts of the country in the NGIA who may or may not have any background training in disability at all so the line between health and disability is always going to be blurry if you've got a health condition it might lead to a functional disability if you've got a disability you often might have comorbidity with health so there's there's always going to be a fuzzy line there I think where that becomes problematic is when you get these discussions around scheme sustainability and political pressure to keep pricing, you know, on the scheme and and everything under control. And then you can use that blurry line to block people out of the scheme. So what we're seeing at the moment is if you don't have a clear diagnosis, it can be hard to get on the scheme. Um, so, you know, if, if you've, you've got, for all purposes, you have like a functional disability, it's effect, disability is affecting your life, um, but you don't have a doctor that can say, and it is because of this reason, you might not make it through. If you have a disability that kind of waxes and wanes, MS is a good one um, in that sense that, you know, you can have highly functional days and highly limited days. That can, if you present on a day where you're having a good day, you might not get into the scheme. And then you would have seen that there's been conditions where you wonder why from the start would this just not be part of it? The swallowing mm-hmm. um, in the press that just got put in, like it's taking media campaigns to see particular conditions sort of recognised as kind of being immediately eligible for the scheme, which is, you know, it's problematic that we're using the media to get eligibility addressed in the scheme. And um, Claire, you also mentioned before about women and a lot of the challenges that women face, and I guess especially with that dual role that women have being um, dominant caregivers often in, in our society at the moment. Are there any other specific challenges that you're seeing with the women who you work with accessing the scheme? So um, it's actually coming off those medical conditions is that a lot of medical conditions that predominantly affect women are those that are excluded from the scheme quite often. Chronic pain conditions, fibromyalgia continually comes up, autoimmune conditions. Um, They're conditions that there can be debate in the medical community about whether they're permanent or not. And there is history in the medical community of underdiagnosing women in, with chronic pain, things like that. And that prejudice is coming into the NDIS. The NDIS is supposed to be a scheme that's, you know, rights-based about independence, uh, but we're allowing existing prejudice outside of disability in the medical model to come into a scheme that's not supposed to be about that. And that's directly affecting large numbers of women. Um, so the the medical stuff actually is still uh, gender-based a lot of the time. There was, on the gender question, uh, when you go back to um, the evaluation of the trial sites, that report showed that men were getting larger care packages than women as well. Yeah. So there is that, that 
kind of self-advocacy probably Absolutely. issue playing out for women also. Absolutely. And that is that is linked to, in some cases, education levels, income levels, but also the amount of support people seek. Um, there are some interesting statistics about how male carers are more likely to seek formal support than female carers. And not sure exactly why, but that was included in some of the, the reports from the trial sites. And um, if perhaps a gendered analysis of caretaking um, and women with disability in those caring roles had also been included from the start of the NDIS, we wouldn't be in a position where only 37% of participants in the scheme are women. One, one of the related issues, which I'm sure you've looked at, both of you, is um, uh, people with me mental illness and uh, how they mm. uh, get access to the scheme. Uh, they particular <clears throat> Many of the advocates have been particularly concerned about the word permanent uh, because they want to um, advocate for uh, an understanding that people with mental illness are on a road to recovery in many circumstances. And so I, I do think that <clears throat> this is an issue that um, the National Disability Insurance Agency is working through um, and a lot of the advocates are thinking about how, how this uh, can be managed better. I think you're right, Gemma, that a lot of these issues, uh, the lines between health and Disability is often very difficult to uh, discern, but uh, in the case of mental illness, uh, I think there's some more fundamental issues that uh, people are working through. I think you've got this like, inherent tension going on where you have a scheme built on these ideas of empowerment and choice and control, but then we've set up a kind of bureaucratic process for accessing the scheme that is a deficit model where I hear stories that in your word, people having to present the worst possible version of their disability in order to get into it. Well, and I'll add to that, that that's feedback we've gotten from the community, yeah. that a lot of people are very distressed about having to recount their worst moments, their worst days, instead of talking about their goals, which is what this, the, these things are supposed to be about, what planning is supposed to be about, what am I working towards, what do I want to do uh, with my money? Um, people are being forced to just say the worst thing about their disability and that's not empowering at all. It, it's very deficit-focused and we're hearing that every day. How can the scheme be changed to ensure that it, the people who need it are able to access it and participate in the scheme while maintaining that empowerment focus and not having to having to tell these stories? Is it more training for the... Um, how, like how do we go about upholding this? I think we definitely need to look at the training that's going into the, the people who are doing the planning um, mm. within the, the NDIA um, and some of those people sit out of the NDIA now. Um, so that that is like a clear intervention that has to happen and mm. you would Absolutely. have more on that on the stories of people's experiences, I imagine. Yeah, and uh, once you get past proving your eligibility, when you get into a planning meeting, it should be focused on what you're working towards, not proving your eligibility again, which is sometimes what planning meetings turn into. Um, you're, you're, you shouldn't be going into a planning meeting with someone doubting your eligibility. They should be there to plan going forward. What will you do? How much money do you need to get there? Or looking to minimise costs within that Absolutely. plan as well. Um, and you would have seen in the press, like Rick Morton's written some stuff about how 
package sizes have been getting smaller as the conversation about cost blowout has been going up and up. So we will talk a little bit more about um, women and the experiences of um, women in the scheme. Obviously, more attention needs to be paid to this issue if there's only 33%, 37% of people accessing the scheme who are women, and I'm pretty sure they don't make up 37% of people. It's about 50-50. <laughs> oh, that's a surprise. Um According to a review by women with um, disabilities, Victoria, um, women compared to men experience more barriers in access to health services and they see higher rates of poverty, housing stress and lower levels of education and employment. Cleve touched on so many of these issues as, as have you, Gemma and Jenny. So at the same time, there's a lack of research on the health services needs of women with disabilities. Um, Gemma, do you see that um, there needs to be more research in this area and how it can be addressed. Obviously, you're doing lots of fantastic work in the space, but can you see where research might um, help support this more? We don't have a lot of research around um, kind of the additional morbidity associated um, that comes from a lack of services for people with a disability. So there's an assumption a lot of the time in the research, because it's quite biomedical-led, that you have a health problem because you have a disability versus kind of flipping that over a bit. You um, have a disability and then as a result of that, structures around you in your life don't work as well and that creates other health complexities. Um, so there's a little bit of an issue in the framing around the research that does get done. So it's incredibly technical research to answer to your question. But there's a bit of a framing issue there about which one you put first. I think the other thing is that like, as the NGIS rolls out, I mean, Bruce Bonahady, um said in a forum in Melbourne um, a few weeks back, you know, that we have the potential to create the most comprehensive data set on disability in the world, but that would require um, us to actually have a sense of what that data looks like, which comes back to an NDIA problem, that the data is not being released, so there are no eyes on that data. Uh, it, and if we had that data, we would be able to see things like, we've got 37% of women, but what do the packages look like for those women? Do they look fundamentally different? Is there inequality in what those packages look like? So at the moment, um, there's no eyes on the data that is being collected, even though there's so much potential for it, not just to improve the scheme for women, but to tell us about disability more broadly. And I was just thinking about evaluation and data and what's happening in this space. Jenny, what was um, the views going back to when the scheme was developed? What were the views around how we'd actually see how this is working and how we would evaluate it? Um, as these guys have already mentioned, there was an early evaluation uh, after the um, trials. So that was built in right from the beginning. Uh, but I really agree with the point you've just made that we do need to have the data available so that there can be ongoing assessment on a regular basis of the experience in the scheme um, on the issues you've raised, but you could think of a thousand other uh, issues that uh, need to be a part of um, continuing examination. Uh, and uh, I always think the best way to do that is through open access to uh, the data. Um, so uh, I think that is absolutely essential for that to happen. 
Jenny, I'm going to throw this one at you as well. On this podcast, we often hear that um, or often hear people suggest that governments no longer have an appetite for significant um, big vision policy mm. and reforms. Mm. This is a massive reform. Um, it, it is a massive reform, no doubt about it. Yeah. So this is proof then that this is not the case? Big reforms didn't die back in the 80s? <laughs> uh I absolutely uh, don't think big reform uh, is uh, dead and uh, I would argue very strongly that we uh, have a responsibility, all of us, to make sure that uh, that sort of cynical uh, view that a lot of people have in the community is counted. Uh, Having had the opportunity to both witness and be part of some very, very big reforms over my working life. Uh, I, I know that it can be done. Uh, there's no doubt that the National Disability Insurance Scheme was the biggest reform that I was part of, uh, but we introduced other very big reforms. And I think um, that what um, many Australians understand is that there is a need for us to uh, undertake a big reform in some of the largest policy challenges facing our nation, probably most significantly climate change. Uh, I know that's not the topic for today, but... It's our topic uh, every day if we live on Earth, I think. <laughs> yes, and but seriously, on this question of um, uh, the capacity to bring about uh, big reform, you can either be very frustrated with um, the parliament and the processes of um, uh, policy making. Um, it w- it's easy to imagine being so in relation to climate change because we've tried so many times and it's been undone. But uh, I do like to um, be optimistic about these things and use the example of the National Disability Insurance Scheme to really show that um, you can really step through a huge reform like this. Uh, it took me more than five years to from start to finish. So that was to get it from the idea stage through to the legislation getting through the parliament. But then, of course, the implementation is still underway. So that's another five years since. These big reforms can sometimes be very hotly contested, as the introduction of Medicare was. Uh, That too took um, a generation, really, uh, to become embedded in the national uh, psyche. I hope the NDIS will become like Medicare and become one of the great loved institutions once we get through some of these difficult implementation issues. Uh, But I also um, uh, hope that uh, we will see uh, the next big round of reform take take place. Um, And as I say, I think the highest priority is in uh, climate change. uh, And I hope Uh, that we will see that uh, done as soon as possible. I think one of, just drawing on Jenny's point, I think one of the important things um, with the NDIS is for people not to think that because there are challenges and complexities in implementation, that that's a reason that we should step away from big reform. It's so big, it's so complex, there were always going to be challenges. But as Jenny highlighted, there's also um, things we could do today that would alleviate some of that. 
And it has already made a massive difference to many, many people. Um, There are so many people who are accessing support for the first time. There are families that are able to stay together because they're able to get support that they never would have gotten before. Um, We are in the process of entirely reforming our system from something that was completely broken and it's already an improvement. And as much as we can, you know, pick it apart, there are certainly things that are good about this reform. That's why we made it. I think that's the important thing to remember is that uh, once we've, once the transition is completed, there will be not only the um, 460, 500,000 people with disability and all of their families who will benefit uh, in the way that you've just described, Claire, but uh, think about the fundamental shift in the way in which services are being delivered away from a charity model, away from a welfare uh, model that says, well, we've got a limited amount of money to spend. That's always spending. Too bad if you're in great need. Uh, We've already spent the cash. Uh, that's not how this is going to work. It's also not being done on a year-by-year basis. It is being developed um, uh, with an early intervention and a lifetime approach. Uh, All of these are fundamental shifts in thinking and uh, that's why it's so revolutionary a change. Um, But, um, uh, and I hope, by the enthusiasm you can hear in my voice, uh, that uh, people are encouraged to take on other uh, big challenges because they really can make a huge difference in our country. Can I ask a quick political question of Jenny? (laughs) (laughs) Yay, yes. (laughs) So right now we've got, under the Scott Morrison government, we now have a minister for charity and a minister for the NDIS, which is representing two completely different paradigms of social services. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> uh, well, <clears throat> I absolutely uh, want to see the delivery of uh, disability services out of the sort of welfare charity uh, approach of the past. That's not to say that good people didn't do good things in the past. There were many, many people who did good things, but that wasn't giving people with disability what they wanted, which is independence and control over their lives. So we have to have this fundamental shift in the way in which we uh, think about what uh, how the services are delivered and also take this lifetime insurance approach. So that fundamental shift is now in the legislation. It will be implemented. Now, the charity issue, there are still lots and lots of other charities, of course, in Australia. Uh, And one of the uh, good things I think that we also did in government was set up uh, the... um, uh, the national system to really regulate charities in a way that hadn't been done before. Um, and that's important that that is done, but as something quite separate uh, and different from the NDIS. I will try and finish on that um, optimistic note that you had before. And I did love the enthusiasm coming from all of you looking forward with how the scheme's going to work. I'll, I'll, rather than throwing it out to all of you, I will hand this over to you, Claire, that if you had one recommendation um, to give policymakers how to um, tackle the challenges facing the NDIS and enable it to blossom into the fullest scheme that it could, 
um, in addition to all, all that have been mentioned here, is um, what would it be? Gosh, I have such a long witch list. <laughs> um, I would say that I really want to see the NDIS gendered. I want to see a gender strategy. I really do. Um, it's not just a matter of targeting these issues individually. It needs to be an overall overarching strategy and it would be a model that would help so many marginalised groups, not just women as as they stand. Yeah, I've got one. It, it might be too technical, um, but the local area coordinator positions, so they were outsourced, again, as part of the small government agenda under the Abbott government. Uh, and because of the cap on the staffing, we're seeing the local area coordinators who would have been working with families, connecting services and with other services, kind of like glue in the system on the community level, they've turned into planners. So we've actually lost this really innovative design element of the scheme during implementation. So my yeah, other ask would be turn LAX back into LAX. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us here today. Ladies, I know this conversation could just, well, it will keep going and it will keep improving the scheme. And listeners, don't forget to stick around for part three of our podcast where we'll go so um, over some of your questions, comments and suggestions for future podcasts. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Got a story you want to tell? Or an audience you want to reach through the magic of audio? Then we've got the short course you've been waiting for. I'm Martin Pierce, And I'm Sarah Bice. And we're running a very special podcasting for professionals short course here at the ANU's Crawford School. We'll teach you everything you need to get your idea into audio and out to an audience. We'll answer all the questions you might have, like... What should I call my podcast? What formats work? What equipment do I need? How do I do interviews? How do I write a script? How the hell do I use this audio editing software? How do I reach my adoring Spotify audience? And how do I know if I've been successful? So many questions, Martin. And so many answers, Sarah. Plus, you'll get hands-on experience right here in the Crawford Podcast booth. And you'll get to meet some of the Crawford Podcast game. That's Podcasting for Professionals short course. Find out more at bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. That's bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. Yeah, well, welcome back. And thanks very much again to our guests for that really fascinating discussion about the NDIS. Sarah's still with me. What did you make of it? I thought that was a terrific discussion and it was so wonderful to have Jenny Macklin on the program, someone who's been committed to the idea of the NDIS since the Gillard government and Julia Gillard played an exceptional role in getting that policy through. I think now we're in a situation where the NDIS as an idea is something that does have a lot of support. The notion of choice in a national disability insurance scheme, the idea of giving disability service users, their carers and families more control over the services that they access and to have that choice is very important. But we're certainly seeing, and the podcast demonstrates this, a lot of teething problems in the rollout of the NDIS. Here at the Crawford School, the NDIS as a major social policy reform is something that we study in a course that I teach called Cases in Contemporary Public Policy. 
and it's one that really creates a lot of debate and division amongst the students. There are those who feel that welfare and the provision of social services like NDIS should continue to adopt a policy recipient style role so that this is something that the government should uh, be giving. What's happening here in the NDIS debate, which I think came out in the discussion but maybe wasn't articulated in these terms, is that the NDIS has transitioned people who were previously service users or recipients into citizen consumers. And so there's also a really important discussion to be had in Australia about whether and how we want our policies to to treat us. Do we want to become clients of the government? Do we want to become citizen consumers? And what does it mean when you are required to take over more choice and control? For many Australian families, it simply meant more administration and more frustration. These are all really good questions. I I should say thanks to Tess for hosting that discussion. I thought she did a terrific job. She certainly did. And I think her final question where she asked about, you know, she talked about how the NDIS was a really big picture, bold public policy and whether that, you know, puts a lie to these kind of ideas that we have about you just can't make those kind of big policies anymore uh, was a very interesting one. What's your take on that? Do you, do you think that there is still an appetite for really big fundamental policy changes? Can you still drive that through, particularly in the kind of hothouse of politics with the sort of rapid turnover of prime ministers that we've seen in Australia? Yeah, this tension between uh, political machinations and concerns with the next election cycle from the day after you you've been elected is very problematic. And I think we do have to have an appetite for big policy reform in Australia. And that's something we need to continue to be brave about. The NDIS is a very brave reform. It's a very big reform. When we teach the case in our course, we talk about something called complexity theory. And basically what it says is the world is messy and difficult and there are a lot of factors that will come into policymaking that maybe we didn't anticipate. And the NDIS in its brave rollout is adopting a trial and error approach. Now this is really unusual in policymaking because Most of the time, our policymakers like to say to us as citizens, we know what we're doing and we know how we're spending your money and we're going to get everything right. There's no need for a trial. That's right. We don't need to try anything. Exactly. No trial, no errors. The NDIS has very purposely had a trial-based rollout. It's been relatively slow. So the rollout started in 2016. We're still looking to Western Australia to come on board probably in 2020 on a full-scale rollout. So I think that we also have to think about, as citizens, our comfort level in allowing the flexibility for government to have big visions, to roll out big policy reforms and to recognize that that may require uh, some teething time and some trial and error. Thanks for that, Sarah. And very keen to get your thoughts on that NDIS discussion, listeners. But now, moving on, around the world, cities are becoming more densely populated, even while the people living in them feel increasingly isolated from one another. And while city planners and governments may be keen on introducing recreational spaces, are they the kind of spaces that people want 
or need. Now, earlier this week, I spoke to Carolyn Hendricks. Carolyn is an associate professor here at Crawford School, but she's also part of a team that has recently won a $10,000 prize for their idea on how to take our unused spaces in towns and cities, the alleyways, the verges, the waste ground, and turn them into places where locals can make something useful to the people who are actually going to use them. It's called the Stomping Grounds Project, and it's an idea that I think could be transformative for how we think about community engagement, how citizens deal with governments, and how to make our towns and cities more livable. Let's have a listen to what Carolyn had to say about it. So, welcome, Carolyn. Hi there, Martin. In June, you entered the Australian Institute for Landscape Architects Ideas Competition for Remaking Lost Connections. And your team was your neighbour, some of your colleagues, and some high school kids that live just down the street from you. The competition invited people to explore issues around climate change through reinventing lost connections in Canberra's cultural, natural and built environments. And your team managed to take home the $10,000 prize. So congratulations to that. Thank you. I'm really interested in hearing about this project. Tell us a bit more about it. What what does it aim to achieve? Now, they, they left the, the competition left the idea of connections very opened. Um, and our team really wanted to look at the connections, uh, both social connections and democratic connections, and of course, the broader theme being climate change. How do we uh, think about connectivity as the city needs to adapt to changing climate? Now, you came up with this idea of the stomping grounds project. What is a stomping ground? So a stomping ground is a a term we kind of, um, obviously, it's not a new term, but we, we are using it here to refer to spaces that citizens are claiming in the city. They're public spaces um, that are currently neglected or underused. So you think about the end of a lot of areas in Canberra, but in in many cities, there's these dead spaces on our verges at the ends of our street that may or may not have grass on them that are just mown and we walk over them, but they are sites of potential connectivity, sites where citizens and people who live in the area um, might want to meet to grow things, to have a conversation. So how do these stomping grounds go about tackling climate change? A big element of adapting to climate change is community resilience, is, is people being able to feel like they have some sort of agency and also that they can contribute themselves. So often we hear about lots of different small steps we can take to reduce our carbon emissions. But I guess what we wanted to capture in this ideas competition with our proposal was that there are lots of citizens out there that, that actually want to do something in their in their local neighbourhood. And at the moment, actually, when communities want to do this sort of thing, so they initiate it, it's, they confront a lot of bureaucracy and um, urban planning issues, which which is, on one hand, you can imagine is needs to be there. We need to regulate how these spaces are used. Um, but it often really stifles that community energy to create something that connects the community together to have conversations. So part of the idea with the stomping ground was to harness people's energy, community energy, to do something locally, but also that through these activities on the site, um, multi-use activities, workshops, um, gardening, planting urban forests, that citizens would then start to become more aware and have conversations around climate adaptivity. 
Now, you talked about these spaces as sort of neglected spaces. And in one way, one reason why they might be neglected spaces is because they're almost kind of invisible. They're at the end of people's roads or they're, you know, a bit of waste ground here and there. Just how widespread are these spaces that could be utilised for these types of things? Yeah, well, we we know, for those of us that live in Canberra, we know that the the city is full of these spaces, um, you know, various green patches at the end of our streets or big verges, wide verges that often just become car parks. Um, but, you know, and some, some uh, residents do use their verges for planting trees and things. Um, but this at the moment is is um, technically illegal. Um, and so I guess we we feel that there's actually lots of these sites both in, in a city like Canberra that, that are not um, dead spaces because they have to be. I think for a lot of um, people who live in neighbourhoods, they could become something more than just a, an area that's of grass that needs to be mown regularly. Now, of course, one of the challenges to do that, you talked about how if people plant a tree at the moment in their garden, that's illegal. And that suggests that people have some challenges in terms of their interactions with government and with bureaucracy. How might this program go about addressing some of those? So at the moment, I don't think there's real crackdown on the way people use their verges. But I think when you sort of move beyond your own sort of property and verge to down the street, for example, yeah, it gets complicated in terms of, well, whose who's land is this and what activities can you do on that space? And I guess one of the ideas in a stomping ground area is that these uh, initiatives, if a citizen group were to initiate something, that the approach would be more one of co-design rather than, well, here's the regulation, you have to do this. So it's a it's a conversation. And the ACT government is working more and more towards this co-design approach. Um, but I guess what we are trying to, to put right front and centre is this citizen agency, this idea that these spaces and their management um, would be would be in the hands of citizens and that that itself is quite radical in the current kind of planning um, mindset. But are there also short-term uses for these types of spaces? Would it be a mix of, of both long and short-term projects? Essentially what we've done is named something that kind of in a way is, is taking shape already um, and we've set out an idea um, for how these community groups would work and how the government could work more productively with, with those groups. Um, so short-term kinds of um, activities um, could be things like uh, growing or, or planting some more uh endemic species that would attract um, biodiversity and and wildlife. Um, so longer term projects would be things like planting substantive trees. Um, but, you know, you could also just plant a, a garden, a local veggie garden in the summer that would bring uh, people out. Now, I can see how something like this would work pretty well in Canberra. It's a sprawling city. The suburbs are designed with a fair amount of space in them already. How would an idea like this work in a more sort of densely packed uh, sort of older city? I guess we had uh, Canberra fully in mind with this ideas competition, but but one of the judges, Adrian McGregor, who's a well-known um, landscape architect, uh, internationally well-known, so he works a lot in, in China, um, in, in various large cities in the US, and he really found this idea quite transferable. And I think in, in more established and older cities, I guess you've got to remember there's a constant regentrification going on. Um, and also, I guess, as dense population densities get higher, there's more demand for these kinds of open spaces. 
Um, and I guess what we're playing with here is where the subversive sort of idea of the stomping ground comes, is that sometimes those spaces need to be organic, messy, and iteratively developed. So there's a public park that people might go to that's very manicured and, and nice to be in, and I think we all need those kinds of spaces. But there's also, particularly in highly densely populated areas, we citizens also and people really enjoy being able to do something. So we've talked about the effect this might have on giving people some sense of agency over, you know, climate change. We've talked about how it might improve neighbourhoods and give people things that they actually want um, around them. But what might it actually do for communities and that sense of community building? Is it an easy thing to bring people together to do something like this? And what might be the impact on those communities afterwards? What I want to stress here is that what we have in mind here is quite different from a community garden where people get an allocated plot um, and you become usually a member of that garden and you abide by certain rules that that collective um, has. It's like joining a club, right? That's right, yeah. So so a stomping ground in our um, understanding is really different from this. It's it's much more um, open um, and it's it's very much a bottom-up kind of uh, approach where if a group of citizens sort of say, oh, look, wouldn't it be good in our neighbourhood if we had somewhere for for the kids to be able to grow um, some veggies, a meeting point, for example, or uh, wouldn't it be good if we had um, an area where people um, could uh, do some um, exercise together, have a boot camp? The options here are endless, but I guess it's about the citizens instigating it um, and that that stomping ground would run by um, would you'd apply for for uh, this area to be have a multi-use activity so the idea would be that the stomping grounds have um, a commitment to multi-use so they're not just one group wanting to do one exclusive activity like gardening um, and that that if the if the citizens got got the stomping ground um, off the ground that they would abide by um, and and some basic principles uh, which we think would help those stomping grounds become points of connectivity to the broader community. So I'll give you a really practical example. So if if a stomping ground was to emerge, for example, at the bottom um, of your street, um, you know, the idea would be that the stomping ground would uh, um, firstly activate it um, and then there'd be a commitment to to nurturing the stomping ground um, and that that part of that nurturing would involve connecting out to the local schools, would be about connecting out to the local, um, you know, different organisations that might be interested in using the space. And I guess demonstrating and being inclusive in both the activities, but also how the activities is run. Um, and then there's this also this idea that, that we recognise that some stomping grounds might fail. They might be messy. They might actually not, not have that sustained interest. So the idea with the stomping ground is also that the communities have to actually return the stomping ground to its its previous form. So there's a commitment there to the community. If you're going to step into this space, you have to be part of also decommissioning it. It is a lovely idea, and I'm quite excited about the uh, your proposal to put one at the end of my street there, Carolyn. <laughs> you're going to go for the pizza oven type or Maybe you're going to go, go for, for the, the gardening type? I, I would love a pizza oven. That sounds fantastic. But, I mean, this was an ideas competition, and it's an ideas competition where you took home the $10,000 prize. But what happens next? How do you turn that idea into reality? Yeah, so we, um, we're pretty committed to um, investing that, money into getting a pilot project up. 
So um, the question then is, well, well, we need a we need a group of citizens who want to do this sort of thing. And as I said before, there there are pockets of this sort of thing happening all around our cities, um, and some work subversively as guerrilla gardens and others work um, with a lot of inter- involvement of the local planning authorities, whether that's a local council or in the ACT case with the various planning authorities. Um, so one idea, and we're still working through this, is to to approach um, a community association and also uh, a, a kind of social housing or corporate housing cooperative because we're, we're really interested in making sure or at least piloting that this is not just a, an idea that people with a lot of time and cash and gardening skills get involved in. So we're very keen to see if there's a need and an interest for this sort of thing in marginalised populations who might not actually have access at the moment to a lot of public space or a lot of space to, to to play in or to work in or to be in. I would imagine people who listen to this might feel quite inspired right now. They might be thinking about those spaces around them that could be transformed into stomping grounds. So if there are any listeners that are feeling inspired like that, what's your advice to them? What should they do? Where, where should they go to read more about this? What comes next for them? The idea of the stomping grounds you can definitely find more about and, and we can attach some of that material to, to the podcast links. Um, but I think I guess my uh, advice would be to 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 get get a lot of people involved and start having a conversation about what's possible. So this this whole idea for us came from having a cup of tea with my neighbour um, because she was frustrated with a lot of um, opportunities for community engagement that that really left people feeling like they didn't have much agency at all, um, and and thought wouldn't there be a, wouldn't it be interesting if we could create a different way of connecting citizens with their local communities in a way that worked constructively with government and not always making it feel like any citizen initiative has has to confront a lot of bureaucracy. Um, and we've come a long way since that initial conversation. So my, my advice would be to start having conversations with your neighbours um, and people in your streets through the schools. I'm sure there's lots of um, ideas that people have had about how they might use their the spaces around them. It is a lovely idea and uh, we will leave some details about it in the show notes for this podcast. But thank you so much, Carolyn, for coming in and telling oh, thanks, us. Thanks, Martin. It's been uh, kind of a little idea that's grown into something a bit bigger. <laughs> well, uh, perhaps you can come back and tell us a bit more about it once you start spending that $10,000. Great, thanks. <laughs> So thanks once again to Carolyn for that. Sarah, you work in the area of community engagement. What do you think about the Stomping Grounds project? Oh, I think it's a terrific idea. One of the things I really like about it is it's community members saying to government, hey, this regulation you have in place, it just doesn't make any sense. Like how silly is it that it was illegal for people to do planting on their verges? This is about giving communities control and it's about giving people a say about the local areas and the spaces that they experience every day. I'm also really happy about it because if Carolyn gets a good vegetable garden going, she happens to be my office neighbor and I'd love for her to bring me some veggies. (laughs) So I think it's interesting because it sort of flips the idea on its head of who gets to decide the kind of recreational spaces in our towns and cities. Now, urban planners and developers are obviously keen to introduce 
these kind of recreational spaces when they're doing it. But it's from a kind of top-down perspective, right? They'll say, you need a park here or, you know, you need a you need a playground here. But this is really about getting the people who actually live in those spaces to go, actually, what we want is, you know, an urban forest or we want a, a library that we can... I want a ropes course on the way to school. <laughs> on a ropes course on the way to school. Carolyn talked about it as, you know, being potentially a kind of confrontational idea for urban planners and for developers. How do you think they might kind of respond to that? Well, as you mentioned before in this podcast, I head up the Next Generation Engagement Program, which is all about community engagement around major infrastructure projects. And in many instances where major projects are being delivered, let's say there's a toll road, you will also see then discussion about new bicycle lanes or a new playground or a new park. Now, historically, what's happened is those ideas have been rolled into those project designs by the developers themselves. But what we are seeing increasingly, and Carolyn, as a person who studies deliberative democratic processes and public participation, I'm sure will be happy to hear this, we're increasingly seeing developers take on more deliberative and participatory methods to ask community members, look, we've got this space here, there's going to be a clearance area, and we can put something there. What is it that you would like? And I've also seen very effective community engagement around Issues that are really, they seem quite simple and they seem quite unimportant. But an example was uh, I was working with a group around the East-West Link toll road in Victoria back when um, the East Link was being put in. And there was a discussion in a local community about where the entrance to a bicycle path was going to go. Now, this turned out to be extremely important to people because they knew that they had an issue with mammals, you know, middle-aged men in lycra, zooming by certain spots of the footpath at a certain time of day. I feel like you're looking at me rather pointedly. You when do you have this. a lot of bicycles just outside, just outside the podcast booth, Martin, but no judgment. <laughs> Look, long story short. Through community consultation, the developer was able to determine where the best entry to the bike path should go, and it reduced local parents' concerns about their children being run over by very fast bicycles. Now, that consideration wouldn't have come into your normal urban planner's process because there was an obvious point from a planning perspective of where to put the bike path entry. But when you talk to local people about how they actually use the space, the entry needed to go somewhere else, and that's where it went. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? So it just goes to show that when urban developers, when planners do work with communities in constructive ways, you can actually have much better outcomes. Absolutely. So there you go, listeners. Um, we're keen to get your thoughts about the discussion that we had with Carolyn there. What do you think about the Stopping Grounds project? Is it something you would keen to see uh, put into place in your neighbourhood? Do get in contact with us. The best way to do that is of course, the Facebook group, we're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook, or you can reach out to us on Twitter, we're Raps Policy Forum, or email podcast at policyforum.net. Now, as you might have seen, if you have been on our Facebook podcast group, the Policy Forum Pod mugs, which you can win, really do make people happy. I don't know if you saw this, Sarah, but there was a lovely photo from our pod group member, Joanne, who posted a pic of her after receiving her mug. And she left a comment saying, thank you, Policy Forum Pod team, for always keeping me going in the week. 
with engaging pods, Facebook discussions, and now the addition of a sturdy mug for my brews. I'm sure all my colleagues are extremely jealous. Oh, nice? they're definitely jealous, Joe. They're Joan. definitely they're jealous. Definitely jealous. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your lovely message, Joe. We're really uh, glad that you're enjoying the mug. And if you want to get your hands on one of those mugs, listeners, there are two ways to do it. You can either suggest to us via the Facebook group a topic for the pod that we might later make into an episode, or you can have your comments and questions read out on the pod, and that can either be here on Policy Forum Pod or on Democracy Sausage. Uh, we're a pretty forgetful bunch, so we need you to actually remind us when you've had your comments or questions read out. And the best way to do that is just comment under the post of the respective podcast. Just write question one, comment two, or whatever it is. Once you get to five, we'll be more than happy to send you out one of those mugs. Now, I want to uh, welcome a few members to our Facebook group. So hello to Jillian Verhart, Ali Khan, Rebecca Lashinsky, and James Frost. That's James Frost, who is sometimes on our Democracy Sausage podcast. And a special thanks to Ali and Jillian, who gave us some suggestions for future podcasts. So Ali wrote, I want to see how policies are helping with unemployment and moving people away from Centrelink to actual work. And Jillian wrote, healthy economies, which may lead to wise water, land, air, and marine settings likely to to endure. What do you reckon about those, Sarah? Well, those seem like really good ideas in both instances. Uh, with Ali's question, and this is what's difficult with short comments on things like a Facebook page, you don't have an opportunity to get into the context. But one of the things which is perhaps implicit in that comment is that everyone on unemployment should be quote, moving to actual work. And there's this discussion in the welfare space around the deserving poor. And so for me, the comment raises a few red flags or a few questions around, is it the case that we want everyone on unemployment to move away from Centrelink to work? Or is it more about having a social welfare system that is able to respond better to a range of needs? Because not everyone will be necessarily equipped uh, for the contemporary workplace. And we do need to have social services in place to support those individuals. And that also goes somewhat to our discussion earlier around the NDIS. In terms of Jillian's comment, I think a terrific comment. What's interesting there, Jillian, and we could have a long conversation about this, is do we look to economies as the basis of achieving things like environmental and social management? Or do we need to get the environment right first and then the economy will follow? Yeah, I think they're both interesting suggestions and I, I certainly hear your points about the what the point of welfare in a social security system is. And actually on the subject of welfare schemes, it, this seems like a good time to point out that we've got a really – exciting talk coming up from Professor Philip Alston. Now, Philip Alston is the UN's Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty. He was also a man that produced a report looking into the UK's Universal Credit Scheme, which caused quite a fuss in the UK when it came out. He's going to be talking here at Crawford School on Thursday, 18th of July. We'll leave a link to the event details in the show notes. But I'm also excited to say that uh, Philip is actually going to be a guest on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to having a chat to him. 
Of course, we're always keen to get your thoughts on everything that we have talked about on the podcast or future podcasts that you'd like us to make. Join the Facebook group if you're not already on there or let us know and reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, And if you've enjoyed today's episode, then we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a quick review on iTunes. It'll only take 30 seconds or so and it'll be a big help to us in getting the word out about the podcast. We always love hearing from you. This episode of Policy Forum Pod has been produced by Yulia Aron, so many thanks, Yulia, for your excellent work on this. We will be back next week with another Policy Forum Pod, but until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sarah Weiss, listen up, write in, and be well. <laughs> <laughs>